Order. Good morning, James. God, as we wrestle with your word, your Torah, the story of the freedom and liberation of your people, we ask you to speak to us in new and fresh ways. Help us to see the truth that you, you'd have us see and give us the courage to be knit together in love. Let that be true for us, your people, and we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Good morning again. For the benefit of guests, I am not Jason. Uh, my name is Joe Miller, and I am the pastoral associate here at New Hope Community Church. Oh, that is why I have a jacket on. I read a book. No. Um, over the past seven and a half years, my wife uh, Amy and I have counted it um, an honor to fellowship with you all, and this new position um, allows us to take a step a new step in the story God would have for us in his kingdom. I count it a privilege and an honor to work alongside Jason and the other leaders at our church. And I want you to know that although this position isn't a paid one, um, it's not something I wish to take lightly. I wholeheartedly believe in the work that God is doing through New Hope. And I'm anxious to see what the future holds. Interestingly enough, the last time Mary Ellen's uh, team was here leading worship for us. Uh, We had a guest speaker. It was Stephen Bowman, who is the um, vice president of programs at World Relief. Uh, It's the organization that my wife Amy works for. Um, It's one of the uh, organizations that New Hope supports. Um, Interestingly enough, this past week, we received word, or I guess World Relief received word, that Stephen himself had now been named the next president of World Relief. Um, So... That's uh, kind of ironic there. That's big news, and I don't know too much about that. I guess uh, we'll find out more about that as it, as it comes along, but um, that's exciting news for them. Well, we are God's people, and therefore we are a part of the story that God is telling. We're a part of the story he began to tell thousands of years ago and continues to tell today. I think it may be easy for us to kind of look back at the history of God's chosen people, the nation of Israel, or, the, or even the time, uh, the history of uh, Christ and His church, and fall into the trap of assuming that those times, those times were when the real action was. Well, the exodus was when God's faithfulness was, was really being uh, tested. That's when God's story was truly being told. That was when the time when faith was, was really being challenged. Or perhaps we as, as Christ followers long to have been one of the few people that really got to walk with the Lord, right? To talk with Him, to be by His side physically, and to listen to His teaching. We can only imagine what it would have been like to have Him look us in the eyes and say, as the Father loved me, I also love you. Abide in my love. That's a quote from John 15, and the next line's, may be a little bit more difficult to hear. He says, if you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. If I'm honest, my response would have to be, Lord, 
I am awful at keeping your commandments. I once heard this um, desperately honest prayer from a worship leader that I believe speaks volumes. It said, Lord, I don't love you, and I don't want to love you, but I want to want to love you. Jesus tells us that it, it all hinges on love the laws, the prophets, they all work out in in some way or another that sort of love that God would have for His creation and His people. It is with the epic story of God's love that we find our place in His kingdom today in 21st century America, in a world that is desperate for His justice and His mercy. The hope that we have, the hope of the new creation that's described in Revelation 21 and 22 at the end of the Bible shows us that that's the culmination of the events that began with the narrative that we've been studying at the beginning of the Bible over the past four months. See, today we continue our march through Torah, the first five books of our Bible that are sometimes referred to as the Pentateuch, perhaps sometimes, um, perhaps something that has been lost or at least diminished Um, in the current Christian tradition, is how important these texts were to the Jewish people of Christ's day. For us to study it and to wrestle with its uh, its content is to connect not only with um, the history, law, and prophecy of the Old Testament, but also to better understand the blood of the New Covenant that we see in the New Testament. It is not a matter of historical accident that Jesus was born into a particular nation at a particular time. Torah gave us, and still gives, God's people identity in the tale of his kingdom. N.T. Wright tells us that trying to understand Jesus without understanding what the story was, what that story was, what the story of Torah was, how it worked, what it meant, is like trying to understand why somebody is hitting a ball with a stick without knowing what baseball is. Our text today is Parshat Mishpatim, which is named for the ordinances or the judgments that follow the Decalogue, which what we would call the Ten Commandments. Jason showed us last week that at this point in Torah, the writing takes a, a bit of a turn. See, since the beginning of October, our churches studied this sweeping historical narrative that began with the creation of the world, the corruption of that world, and the introduction... <clears throat> of a people that are blessed to be a blessing. Most of Parshat Mishpatim consists of what is known as the Book of the Covenant, which started in chapter 20, verse 22, and continues on to the end of 23. What preceded these chapters was a narrative of the people of Israel, the children of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. In chapter 3 of Exodus, Moses, the, the man who would lead the Hebrew people out of slavery is told by God that he has heard the cry of his people. God then tells Moses something of his character and his name. He says, I am who I am. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, Yahweh, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. This is my title for all generations. I declare that I will bring you up out of the misery of Egypt to the land flowing with milk and honey. 
the narrative continues on through the exodus from Egypt and lands when Moses is given the Ten Commandments to share to the children of Israel. The Ten Commandments act as this sort of um, introductory kind of but, but foundation to the laws that are to follow it in the Book of the Covenant. Some commentators would say that our text today kind of helps to impress the concepts and principles of Israelite law for the judges and for the community at large. It speaks of case law, morality codes, promises, worship laws, calendars, sexual ethics. The introductory verses at the end of chapter 20 that speak of the worship altar shows us that what is key here is that God keeps his promises and that he is asking for the loyalty of Israel. The Mishpatim that follows shows us that God stays involved with his creation. God is not a divine clockmaker that sets his creation in motion and then expects it to work itself out on its own, to work its own problems out. No, no, God God is an, in an intimate relationship with his people. And this law reflects that truth. He not only gives the law, but he attends to it in a personal way. What we'll find throughout the rest of our time in Torah is the truth that God is not the type of distant, uninvolved God that we might read about in Greek literature, but rather this personal, relational divinity that will, as a songwriter puts it, write love's definition in the very blood of God. God's creations, or more specifically, God's chosen people, are therefore called to be the same relational, be of the same relational mindset that cares for the poor and respects property. So, chapter 21. Now these are the judgments which you shall set before them. If you buy a Hebrew servant, he shall serve six years. And in the seventh, he'll go out free and pay nothing. If he comes in by himself, he shall go out by himself. And he comes in married, then his wife shall go out with him. If his master has given him a wife, and she has borne him sons or daughters, the wife for ch- and, and her children shall be her masters, and he shall go out by himself. But if the servant plainly says, I love my master, my wife, and my children, I will not go free, then his master shall bring him to the judges. He shall bring him to the door and to the doorpost, and his master shall pierce his ear with an awl, and he shall serve him forever. And if a man sells his daughter to be a female slave, she shall not go out as the male slaves do. If she does not please her master who has betrothed her to himself, then he shall let her be redeemed. He shall, not have, he shall have no right to sell her to a foreign people, since he has de- dealt deceitfully with her. And if he has betrothed her to his son, he shall deal with her according to the custom of daughters. If he takes another wife, he shall not diminish her food, her clothing, and her marriage rights. If he does not do these things for her, then she shall go out free without pain. He who strikes a man so that he dies shall surely be put to death. However, if he did not lie in wait, but God delivered him into his hand, then I will appoint for you a place where he may flee. But if a man acts with premonition against his neighbor to kill by treachery, you shall take him from my altar that he may die. And he who strikes his father or his mother shall surely be put to death. He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or he is, or he, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. He who curses his father and his mother shall surely be put to death. If men contend with each other, 
and one strikes the other with a stone or with his fist, and he does not die but is confined to his bed, if he rises again and walks about outside with his staff, then he who struck him shall be acquitted. He shall only pay for the loss of his time and shall provide for him to be thoroughly healed. And if a man beats his male or female servant with a rod so that he dies under his hand, he shall surely be punished. Notwithstanding, if he remains alive a day or two, he shall not be punished, for he is his property. If men fight and hurt a woman with child so that she gives birth prematurely, yet no harm follows, he shall surely be punished accordingly as the woman's husband imposes on him. And he shall pay as the judges determine. But if any harm follows, then you shall give life for life, eye for eye, tooth for tooth, hand for hand, foot for foot, burn for burn, wound for wound, stripe for stripe. If a man strikes the eye of his male or female servant and destroys it, he shall let him go free for the sake of his eye. And if he knocks out the tooth of his male or female servant, he shall let him go free for the sake of his tooth. There's some uh, animal control laws that uh, are outlined there. We won't read all of that. But skip down to the beginning of verse 20, uh, beginning of chapter 22. If a man steals an ox or a sheep and slaughters it or sells it, he shall restore five oxen for an ox and four sheep for a sheep. If the thief is found breaking in and he is struck so that he dies, there shall be no guilt for his bloodshed. If the sun has risen on, risen on him, there shall, be no guilt, there shall be guilt for his bloodshed. He should make full restitution. If he has nothing, then he shall be sold for his theft. If the theft is certainly found alive in his hand, whether it is an ox or a donkey or a sheep, he shall restore double. If a man causes a field or vineyard to be grazed and lets loose his animal and feeds in another man's field, he shall make restitution from the beast of his own field and the best of his own vineyard. Check out uh, verse 16. If a man entices a virgin who is not betrothed and lies with her, he shall surely pay the bride price for her to be his wife. If her father utterly refuses to give her to him, he shall pay money according to the bride prices of virgins. This is an interesting verse. You shall not permit a sorceress to live. Whoever lies with an animal shall surely be put to death. He who sacrifices to any god except to the Lord only, he shall be utterly destroyed. You shall neither mistreat a stranger nor oppress him, for you were strangers in the land of Egypt. You shall not afflict any widow or fatherless child. If you afflict them in any way, and they cry at all to me, I will surely hear their cry. And my wrath will become hot, and I will kill you with the sword. Your wives shall be widows, and your children fatherless. Down to chapter 23. You shall not circulate a false report. Do not put your hand with the wicked to be an unrighteous witness. You shall not follow a crowd to do evil, nor shall you testify in a dispute so as to turn aside that you may pervert justice. You shall not show partiality to a poor man in his dispute. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey goes astray, you shall surely bring it back to him again. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying under its burden, then you would refrain from, and you would refrain from helping it, you shall surely help him with it. You shall not pervert the judgment of your poor in his dispute. Keep yourself far from a false matter. Do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not justify the wicked. And you shall take no bribe 
for a bribe blinds the discerning and perverts the words of the righteous. Also, you shall not oppress a stranger. You shall not oppress a stranger. You shall not oppress a stranger, for you know the heart of a stranger. Because you were strangers in the land of Egypt. That's just a sampling of some of it. I have to imagine that this is not scripture that gets read in a lot of worship services. There are, of course, many different directions that we could go in examining this text. There's obviously specific sections that we could spend entire sermons or sermon series on. Today, rather, I'd like to, I'd like to consider the entire section of Parshat Mishpatim broadly and kind of draw out some wisdom from the forest rather than the trees. Several sections seem to speak directly to God's relationship with his people and outline the principles of how he wants them to act toward him and toward each other. Wisdom, therefore, on the institution of slavery uh, and uh, the dealing with violent individuals, the call for responsibility of property, uh, the animal control laws, while not directly applicable maybe to our lives, can be logically gleaned from certain parts. Personally, I was struck with how helpful these texts must have been to those in positions of power. As strict as we may see some of these ordinances to be, I'd also have to say that they must have served the collective body immensely. For instance, look at the section um, in chapter 21 on ox goring. Uh, In the ancient world, an animal uh, such as an ox wasn't just a pet. It was a person's livelihood. If an animal then hurt or worse kills another human being, animal control laws would be extremely helpful. If tragedy should happen, the animal would be stoned, but the owner wouldn't be punished. However, if this was something that happened before, if the animal had shown tendencies of violence in the past, then the careless owner must pay the appropriate compensation for the injured party. Um, Laws like this could be of tremendous aid, and therefore I believe the first thing that we need to take home today is that these laws are an example of God's mercy. Another important aspect of these texts relate to the worship and ritual guidelines. We begin to see that the wisdom of God, the wisdom God has for his people regarding their worship to him, is intimately related to social issues. Commentators mention that um, the interesting point that the sections that deal with the worship and ritual laws are preceded by laws that deal with morality. The section dealing with the Sabbath um, is preceded by uh, chapter 23, verse 9, a verse that reminds Israel that they know the heart of a stranger. They are to remember who they are, and they are to remember who God is. The second thing that I believe we need to take home from this, uh, Parshat Mishpatim, is that the ordinances help to put Israel in their place. And the third thing here that I think I'd like us to take home, or, or better yet, to take with us as we progress through the rest of Torah and the rest of the Bible, is that these ordinances help to give Israel the identity of his chosen people. These laws help us to better understand the people they were and the people that God wanted them to be. Um, historian Francis Parkman said this in regards to writing history. 
He said, faithfulness to the truth of history involves far more than research, far more than a research, however patient and scrupulous, into special facts. Such facts may be detailed with the most minute exactness, and yet the narrative taken as a whole may be unmeaning or untrue. The narrator must seek to imbue himself with the life and spirit of the time. He must study events in their bearings near and remote in the character, habits, and manners of those who took part in them. He must himself be, as it were, a sharer or spectator of the action he describes. Currently, I am uh, slowly working my way through Ron Chernow's new biography of George Washington. Strongly recommended if anybody is into long, boring history. <laughs> it's not boring. It's not. Um, as a very, very, very amateur historian, I'm finding that multiple perspectives um, uh, are incredibly fascinating uh, and helpful in understanding a particular time period. The life and the perspectives of General Washington has helped me immensely in understanding our nation's um, our nation and uh, our nation's creation in the first revolution. Washington was a tense man, one who lived by a strict moral code that he seldom strayed from. His formal education is a matter of some debate among historians, but one piece of interesting information from his youth was his commitment to the copying of 110 social maxims from the rules of civility and decent behavior in the company and conversation. This was basically a guidebook uh, of etiquette that apparently spoke volumes in Washington's life. Here's a few of them. When you sit down, keep your feet firm and, with, and even without putting one on the other or crossing them. Shift not yourself in the sight of others, nor gnaw your nails. In speaking to men of quality, do not lean, nor look them full in the face, nor approach them too near. At least keep a full pace from them. This is particular, particularly of interest to me. Uh, rule number 13 says, kill no vermin, as fleas, <laughs> as fleas, lice, ticks, and company in the sight of others. If you see any filth or thick spittle, put your foot dexterously upon it. If it be upon the clothes of your companions, put it off privately. And if it be upon your clothes, return thanks to him who put it off. Wear not your clothes foul, ripped or dusty, but see that they be brushed once every day, at least. And take heed that you approach not to any uncleanness. These rules may seem to be a bit over the top for us today. Um, but for Washington, they taught him modesty and deference and submission to authority. Years later, he would find himself the commanding general of the Continental Army. In the winter of 1776, his army was down to a little more than 3,000 men. They faced disease, hunger, lack of shelter, a shortage of clothes, supplies, weapons, backstabbing from his subordinates, and the thought that if his army failed, which they were about to do, he would not be treat treated very well by the advancing British. Many thought the war was over, and he, his army, and his country had lost. But, as Chernow explains, something kept them together. Washington's men, although facing horrific conditions, had this incredible respect for their leader that led them to the end of the violence. He was John Wayne before John Wayne. 
And if you want to understand why, then maybe a pretty good place to start could be the rules of civility and decent behavior that helped deform Washington's character as a young boy. It doesn't, doesn't tell the whole story. Far from it. But it may help as you, it may help to guide you close to the truth. Take a look back to Exodus chapter 24, verse 3. So Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all his judgments. And all the people answered with one voice. They said, all the words which the Lord has said, we will do. All the words which the Lord has said, we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord. And he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain. Twelve pillars according to the twelve tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. Moses took half the blood and put it in basins, and half the blood he sprinkled on the altar. He then took the blood of the covenant and read in the hearing of the people. And they said, All that the Lord has said, we will do and be obedient. Moses took the blood, sprinkled it on the people, and said, This is the blood of the covenant which the Lord has made with you according to all these words. The history of the people of God progresses far beyond the Book of the Covenant that we see in Parshat Mishpatim. There are plenty of laws and ordinances to come and more truth to uncover as we examine them. But I think the lesson for today is that these laws serve us by helping us to better understand the people that were and are called my God. More importantly, though, they help us to better understand the God that is involved personally with his people. Through a better understanding of Israel, then, we begin to glimpse that much more, the character and nature of Christ and his work in a very real history. Pray. God, we center ourselves in the reality of your love, your grace, your peace, truth. God, we've heard the messages, we've heard the voices that tell us what matters and what doesn't, what makes us worthy or valuable. But now we listen for your voice, reminding us that we're loved, valued, accepted, exactly as we are, but you don't intend to leave us like that. We ask to see the resurrected Christ today in all new ways. For those of us struggling with despair, we need hope. For those of us struggling with the loss of identity, we ask that you help us remind each other that we are your family. For those of us burdened, we ask for freedom and liberation. In the most holy name of Jesus Christ, I pray.